Hey now, and welcome to Where Wine Takes You, where we celebrate wine, the stories behind it, and the area leading the way, Paso Robles Wine Country. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Now, later on, I'm going to hit you up with another Travel Paso Spotlight, and I'll give you a hint. Normally, you have to wait a year for this, and actually, we just waited two years for this to come back. I will share with you what that is after our conversation, which I am pumped for. This conversation is going to be a lot of fun. Before that, let me again thank you for choosing this wine podcast to listen to. It means so much, and I love getting your Instagram messages and more. You can follow, you can DM me at Adam on the air. And I always love to remind you, if you haven't yet, to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And please share with a friend. And after we, I don't know, become the number one wine podcast in all the land, and we're on our way, you could say, yeah, remember when I turned you on to that Where Wine Takes You podcast? Yeah, you're welcome. Today is a really fun show with some fantastically talented winemakers and personalities. Now, during my show with the Cork Dorks over the years, I learned about this thing called a consulting winemaker. It's essentially a hired gun, a talented winemaker who can make your wines for you because, well, you can't, or you know they're going to make wine a lot better than you ever could. Maybe you don't have the space, uh, the equipment. Maybe you don't know anything about winemaking. For these people, a consulting winemaker is for you. And I've seen consulting winemakers range from how much they do for the said brand as well. Maybe they're just taking calls for advice all the way to doing all the labor, the punch downs, pump overs, racking the barrels, and passing off a finished bottle of wine. The consulting winemaking gig has always fascinated me as I've been meeting these men and women and learning what really a broad landscape it is. And more often than not, these consulting winemakers will have their own brand as well. Today, we're going to meet two of the absolute best in the game here in Paso. First, Amy Butler of Ranchero Cellars. She is one of a kind. Sharp as a tack, quick as a whip. Super smart. I love her sense of humor. Best of all, she makes world-class wines I and many, many, many people just absolutely love. She had become so popular that folks would just contact her and she was racking up clients of who she was making or consulting on their wine. She scaled down a bit from what I understand, but still has some news for us here. I can't wait to hear that. And I can't wait to taste her wine, Ranchero Cellars. Also, in addition to Amy Butler, we're going to meet Anthony Yunt, another super popular winemaker who makes the wines of the ultra-respected Denner Vineyards. He also makes the wine for many other high-end brands that we will learn about and taste, as well as his estate brand with his wife, the Royal Nunsuch Farm. It's so interesting. Here in Paso, in California, even the U.S., the winemaker is essentially revered. We know who they are. Uh, they're a celebrity of sorts. Their signature, often on the back of a bottle. You go to a place like France, I was surprised to learn that that's not the case. A lot of places we visited, you don't even know who the winemaker is. They don't even, they don't even talk about them. We come into this uh, conversation talking to Amy and Anthony about this very dynamic because they are both Paso winemakers that are very well known, very well respected, and have been consulted and approached for the wines that they are known for making. Anthony makes wines for several brands. Amy also did, but has pared it down a bit. And I was just asking her if she is now focusing solely on her brand, Ranchero Sellers. Give me that mm, sound, we'll get by, we pass on round till the job is camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Mm. 
Well, that's that's somewhat true. I, I actually, I, I kind of sold out in a way, sold my soul. I'm in the corporate wine world now, and I make I make the wine for a brand called McBride Sisters Collection, which is a national brand that you can find in like grocery stores. Um, this is new? That's new. I just started, I was consulting with them. They were just one of my clients back in 2018. And then in 2020, they offered me a full-time job, and I took it. But I still get to make Ranchero on the side. I don't think I could have taken a job and had to give up Ranchero Cellars. Yeah, that's your baby. That's my little baby. Yeah. It's my passion project. It's it's my it's my educational project. You know, I spent I spent a lot of years trying to figure out, for example, how to make Viognier that I liked and um, learning about. You know, I was making Grenache Blanc for a client, and I needed to learn about how how it works in the winery and what works for it. And so I started making Grenache Blanc for Ranchero, and then I wanted to learn about Carignan, so I started making it for Ranchero, and all these things have become. There are these products now that my wine club is like, you know, really into and they're very loyal and I wouldn't want to let them down and stop making Grenache Blanc and Carignan. I've also branched out into a few other varieties, but really Ranchero is my passion project and I think my new employers, they understand that and they, they see it. They, Did you have to iron that out with them? Like, hey, I'm willing to, to do what we're going to do here, but you have to know like Ranchero is, I've got to be able to maintain this, keep this going, make what I want. Yeah, absolutely. They understand my need for creativity because um, while I do make some really uh, top-end, really fun, like GSM and Syrah wines for them, most of what I do for them is, is really large production and it's it's not creativity-driven. It's more, it's sort of need-driven and style-driven and um, I need a little creative outlet on the side. Yeah. Is this just kind of like, you know, using your acumen and doing your winemaking as more like a job? Like the way you're describing it, kind of sounds like this is my job. It's and, a job, and I'm it's absolutely a job. And I like it's like um, it's half winemaking and and half Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. You go to Excel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suck at getting Excel. Getting there, I'm getting there. And then you go to Excel. I'm terrible. Really? Oh, I can, if I never saw an, another Excel spreadsheet, I'd be a happy. <laughs> Amen. I kind of yeah. like I like creating it. I like color coding it. I like I like. I'm I'm a yellow notebook kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or like a po- even worse, like a post-it kind of person. Oh yeah, you know <laughs> that, that is the worst. You never find those. I know. And there's like you know three or four on top of each other. Isn't that interesting? Like that's probably what uh, you know our minds look like inside. Like if I'm a post-it person, <laughs> that means my mind is a bunch of weird thoughts that don't always connect. But some are genius. They have, they some are throwaways. A, a three by three square. Yeah, and they just get stacked on top of each other. <laughs> Yeah, and then yours thought, is like this planned out, orchestrated. The cells are all different colors. Well, it's by it's by um, it's by necessity now because yeah. my my mind used to be more of a post it mind, a sort of a um, sort of a leather bound notebook kind of mind. Oh, there you go. But um, leather bound journal now, with the wrap around. Not only do I, yeah, that'd be cool. Love those. <laughs> now, not only do I have to create spreadsheets, but I have to share them with people, and they have to be understandable by <laughs> the rest of my team. So, right. I, I'll interject from someone looking at you making this transition from thirty thousand feet. I think you're probably more challenged now. That's interesting. Than, than you were. Two years ago. I mean, I am. everything I am. That, that you have to do, it's out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I see, I see the creativity in what you're doing more so. Like, you know, you, you, do, you do boutique wine for 15, 20 years, and all of a sudden you're like, I got my style. You yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden this, this new, new challenge comes up, and it's really... Yeah, I mean, I'm a Rhone girl. I make Rhone wines, and I make I make boutique wines, and I make um, I make you know sort of a, an understated, elegant style of Paso Robles Rhones. Okay, that's kind of like my shtick. But 
now I now for this new company, I'm making like an off dry Riesling, which is a completely different. I mean, that's sure. a completely different. If you want to know how to stick ferments. I'm your guy. <laughs> I can stick a ferment very well on my okay. own. Thank you, Anthony. But I know how to fix it. I'm not as great. Amy's always my first call whenever I'm in trouble. Yeah. Are there like little like superstition things that you may do? Uh, I remember talking to a dude who has like a little SpongeBob thing, and he like would stick it on a stuck ferment. Or are there That's any Glossner's thing? Is it Glossner? Glossner has the SpongeBob. I have a um, a little model of a little stuffed animal thing of um, Captain Jack from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Um, he's my stuck fermentation guy. And he will unstick it. Yeah, and I got the idea from Steve. Steve That's so funny. You have to have a talisman. I'm glad you re- reminded me of who it was because I forgot over the years who that who that winemaker was. Man, this wine is so good, Anthony. Thank you. Damn. Thank you. Something about uh, and you know the last podcast we we had John Munch on oh, and wow. he opened up like, his 08s were still in barrel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he opened up a '98 Chardonnay. Oh, wow, that was fun. Um, we just had a, Syrah. a '97 Pavon from Adelaide uh, that John made that was amazing, and I it was like fifteen six on the label, and it was. Awesome. What is it about the ageability of Paso or perhaps maybe what folks were doing at the time to where we could be 20-something years later and open just a gorgeous bottle of wine? White wine. Yeah. A gorgeous bottle of white wine. Good point. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's limestone. Uh, you know, all those vineyards. The Pavon was the old Bailey, Chenin Blanc, James Berry, Roussan. I don't know where he was getting his Chardonnay. Abernathy? Maybe. Was, is Abernathy that old? I mean, not the I th- guy, I but think the so. Um, um, but it's it's that high limestone. It just brings an energy, a brightness to the wines that I think gives it ageability. Like we just had a 99 Beaucastel Vievin Roussan uh, for our anniversary last week, and it was awesome. Was the it? The color was done, uh-huh. but like the wine was still alive. So we bought one of those bottles. I think that's the most I've ever spent on a bottle in my life. When we were over there, we were at Beaucastel, and we did this beautiful tasting, and I tasted this uh, old vine Roussan. And it was the greatest wine. I, I've never had a wine. It's incredible. Like it's it? incredible. And this yeah. was probably, I mean, it obviously wasn't that like library, but, and the one we bought, I think what, you know, I'm just, I, I really need to sit on it because I, every time I want to go open it, Audrey's like, you son of a bitch, you are not going to open that <laughs> bottle of wine right now. Well, how long do you, what well, you said yours was at what, a 99? A 99. So you waited 20, 22 20, years. 22 years. Yeah. I went, I went to benchmark.com, which is a little wine shop in American Canyon. And okay. I bought it last month. Oh, shoot. So I didn't sit on it at all. Awesome. Yeah. Can I ask you what that set you back? I, I want to say it was like a buck and a quarter. Oh, man. Which really isn't bad for a 22-year-old. No, in fact, when we're done here, I'm going to get that website. Yeah. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Because that is the only that is so good for my post-it mind. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to sit on these. I no. do not have the patience to do that. But um, if you can get a library bottle like that and just like, ding. Yeah. You gotta, I mean, they come up. They're, it's not like they're in stock, but they right. buy people's collections that, you know, stop drinking wine and... They have all this cool stuff that they've sat on, and that's so cool. Um, you know, they're probably getting a pretty good deal, and then they just flip it for yeah. whatever their margin is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so let's hear about um, both of your stories a little bit, Anthony. Talk about where wine took you. Obviously, you want to get into the brands and stuff, but how long have you been in the area? Did you grow up here? What's your story? Uh, I grew up in the wine capital of the world, St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, I came out here to study agriculture and sort of got the wine bug once I was here at uh, at Cal Poly and Slow. Uh, my very first job was here at dinner uh, in 2006, and that's where I met Amy. Amy was making the Ed Sellers wines uh, out of here in 06, um, and we've pretty much been 
super close ever since. Yeah, Anthony's friend Danny was my intern, and they were, I don't know if he still goes by Danny, he probably goes by Dan or something, but they were they were a peas in a pod, and we, we would like, uh, I don't know, we just had a really good time that harvest. Yeah, a- Amy had this like automatic scissor lift punch down tool to do her punch downs, and I had to do them by by hand like over the tanks on a board mm-hmm. and Danny would come in and like never put his coffee down the whole time and push his button to do his, <laughs> do his little joystick punch downs and I'm sweating my ass off doing 40 punch downs by hand and I, I was jealous so at some point you become the winemaker for dinner uh, eventually so I, I left dinner after the 07 vintage and I went up to Via Creek Cellars to be the cellar master and that's 08 vintage that's when I started making the Canera wine. So the Roussan we have, this was the first vintage, the first wine I made. Um, and Chris Cherry helped me get into this fruit. Justin, of course, didn't offer it to me. I was 23. Right. I had no business. I'm, I still don't have any business getting that fruit. Um, <laughs> do you get it now from Justin, though? I do. That's cool. Yeah. So after the first year, I wanted to, to label it Jamesbury Vineyard. I mean, who, who doesn't? Who doesn't, want, right? You know? Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the Grand Cru site in California. So uh, I went to Justin and Heather and I said, Hey, you know, here's the wine I made. Would it be all right if I put Jamesbury Vineyard on it? And they said, yeah. And we, we actually have an acre that came up. And I think it was going to Matt over at Lene Coloto. And I couldn't take a whole acre. So I went in with Guillaume. And that's, we split this acre. And we've wow. done that since 2009. Now, when he kind of added to, he didn't add to a white program, he started a white program. Yeah. Uh, did yours get kind of cut a little bit? Yeah, you know, the tops of my rows are always kind of pre-harvested. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, what's going on it's, there? Yeah. It's always, you know, it's never clear cut what Justin, you know, I get a little bit less every year, which yeah. is fine. Uh-huh. I, I don't blame him, you know. Now, now having my own vineyard, it's like, I, I don't really want to sell to anyone else. I'm, so I'm, I'm amazed he still does. I'm holding on to that Saxon white. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm scared to open it. I got to have it right after it was bottled. It was pretty awesome, uh-huh. but it's definitely a wine that's going to age. You know, it's a yeah. big, it's a big, powerful, but it's it's cool. It's very textural. Awesome. I'm not scared to open it because I think it's going to be bad. That's not the reason. I'm scared to open it because it was ninety eight dollars. That's the yeah. only one you've got <laughs> for real. <laughs> that's, that's the only one I've got. I think I got two. It's so interesting to hear that I that story of like, hey, you know, I think of like. Um, who was the winemaker who had some like being a cedar fruit and he was getting it through maybe like, you know, Bob Lindquist. And then, oh, it was Josh Tambor. It was Josh um, Clapper from Tambor. Yeah. And, you know, just he's making being a cedar fruit and wants so bad to put that vineyard designate on the label like James Berry, like James Berry Vineyard. That's like such a, you know, a momentous thing to put on your bottle. For sure. Being a cedar. Because I mean, who are you? I mean, yeah, I'm some 23 year old punk ass kid that has no, no pedigree. Uh-huh. Like James Berry made that label. But then when they came around and like, you go, hey, we see you're putting, you know, it's on there. They got it approved. And now it's like you, you, you sewed up that relationship yourself. Yeah. You know, it's like now you have that relationship and uh, that's really exciting. I mean, what's, what fun fruit to be able to oh, have access to? It's the best. Yeah. Uh, same program from then to now? Same. Yeah. I mean, winemaking's changed drastically. Right. Uh, I mean, this, this wine is no mallow, all aged in barrique, uh, bottled after three, four months of aging, I mean, it was just like, it was a turn and burn. I had no money, yeah, you know, sure. like I had 15 grand and I spent it all on fruit in the first year. I'm like, if I want to make wine next year, I better sell this. Are you surprised knowing all that, we, what you just said, that that tastes that good? I, I'm very surprised. And this is in a 500 milliliter bottle. I was really cute then and did these single serving bottles. Um, oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's a, it's a cute it little is. bottle. Yeah, it's not even a 750. What a trip. Um, so to have it hold up in the small formats, pretty Pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. 
That's a cool story. All right, so we, um, that's under the Canero, Canero. label. Yep. And that's just kind of our whites? Whites only, all purchased fruit. And then um, my wife, Hillary, and I also make the Royal Nonsuch Farm, which is our estate vineyard um, out on York Mountain. And where, uh, where did that name come from? Uh, it comes from the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Okay. So a little reference to my, to my Missouri roots and a, a sort of a constant reminder to never take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. I remember like reading you know, like Tom Sawyer and oh, yeah. my mom telling me the stories of the fence. And oh, yeah. Those were just like classic. Oh, they're, they're hysterical. And it's fun to go back and read them now. I mean, it was like required reading as a middle school and high school student. And, right. And then to go back and look at it through a grown person's eyes as opposed to... Um, it's I don't know. Point. I mean, I'm really into American literature, and I always find it funny that, like, all the great American literatures are all from the perspective of kids. You know, <laughs> That's a good like point. Yeah. Catcher in the Rye. That, yeah, Huck Finn, all... Tom Sawyer. That Tom Sawyer fence story is winemaking in a nutshell, by the way. Is it? How come? How this so? is really fun. You should try it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. so true. That's so funny. So yeah, then weird. Royal Nunsuch, this is, um, it's the York Mountain stuff. How long, has it been around as many vintages as this? No, so we, um, we bought the, the property in 2011. Um, you know, the market had kind of downturned, and I'd had my eye on that corridor. I used to ride my bike out there all the time, and uh, this property came up, and we couldn't afford the down payment, my wife Hillary and I, so we went to my folks who were still in Missouri, and I was like, hey, you know, this is a great opportunity. It was listed at double that two years ago would you help us get into it? And sight unseen, they, they gave us the down payment. And uh, so we bought it. We could cover the mortgage at the time because it, it wasn't too bad. And then my dad came out in like August and it was a day like today. I mean, it was like 75 and sunny and beautiful. And it was 110 heat index in St. Louis. And he called my mom, who was a, a school teacher and said, uh, this is your last year. We're going to move out. So they lived in our basement for three years. Uh, Hillary and I were not married at the time. So she'd like had no relationship with my mom and all of a sudden she's sharing a laundry room with her man uh and so, because you're living in sin yeah oh yeah <laughs> uh, but eventually we, we built an ag barn and they converted half of it into their house uh wow. which is super cool and now now that we have kids like our five-year-old walks back and forth between the houses and like it's it's pretty idyllic you know from growing up in the city to yeah you know, oh they must love it living out on 25 acres and mm-hmm you know, having this little family compound. So, and my, and my in-laws, we moved them down from Lodi. They're on the next property over on a little rental. So we've got the whole shebang. No way. How cool. Yeah. There's no privacy. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> but that's so cool for the kids to have it's, it's grandma awesome. and grandpa on both sides. So it's close awesome. in like what, I mean, York mountain is just a beautiful, it's so peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. Some crazy wildlife around there. It's amazing. I was walking, uh, we have a one year old and I, I have her on this, front belly pack and i'm walking up the road we're, we're on a dead end road it's about a mile up from our house mm-hmm. and i got the dogs with me and i come up on this huge blood, blood splot in the middle of the road and then like drag marks through it and then there's a deer carcass right there and i'm like fresh you know like mountain lion had just done whatever it did and it was going to come back and i was like here i am with my one here i'm like yeah. i'm getting the fuck out of here right right now damn uh, but um, amazing wildlife. Other than that, yeah, no, I mean it's really real. I <laughs> it's mean, super real. It's sometimes you'll go to the ocean, and like I grew up just you know in Agora Hills, which is just like 15 minutes yeah. east of Malibu, and you know you go to the beach all the time. You may see a dolphin here or there at Zuma, but here you see like you know the sea lion, and then like the sea lion come up with for the seal or the mm-hmm. dolphin. I mean, you see you see it all here. Real stuff. The humpback whales, yeah. whales and ladies and canoes getting sucked into their mouths, and it's <laughs> that was crazy. crazy wasn't I know. It? Yeah, I had them on my morning show. Oh my god, crazy story. Yeah, they get back to the car. 
she's like literally like a cartoon pushing water out of her pockets and fish are coming out. <laughs> and then she goes, where are my keys? <gasps> the keys are gone. <laughs> the keys are either in the ocean yeah. or they're in that whale's hey, stomach. You know what? Yeah. She's <laughs> like, yeah. We'll figure this out. Yeah. But it's a crazy story. So anyways, the, but the wildlife here, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's in rural West Side Paso, it is, it's legit. It's real. It's real. I mean, we, we keep chickens and we are the only buffet in town. I mean, I, I trapped five skunks <sighs> last week that were eating chickens. We've trapped bobcats, possums, raccoons. I had an owl that was eating chickens. We've had- <sighs> and when they eat your chicken... Do, and sorry if this is a little bit much, but do they take it? Do you just know the chicken's gone, or do they leave this mess for you to clean up? Um, it depends. It's like s- most of the time they take it, yeah. you know, and you find the trail of got it of, of evidence. Yeah, sure. Um, but like we just lost our our beloved rooster Rodney of six years uh, last week, and like they just chewed the head off and left him in the field. And oh all, man, you know, brutal! And then I buried him and. They dug it up two days later. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> Savage. Isn't it? Can we pour some out for Rodney? Rodney. To Rodney. To Rodney. Man. So we got Royal Nunsuch. We got the Canero. Where did this, uh, I mean, just a glutton for punishment, or was this a great well, a great side hustle uh, to, to get this kind of, um, where we're going to help a lot of different brands in a lot of different ways? Sure. Uh, so I guess to sort of finish the story in... End of 09 Harvest, Brian, who was a winemaker here at Denner, uh, had a falling out with Ron Denner as the owner, and, th- and he left. Uh, and Ron called me and said, would you come back? You know, the fruit at Via Creek, I was working with five acres of uh, Denner Vineyards fruit and still working with Aaron Navarez, who's been our vineyard manager since 04. Um, so I came back to Denner uh, at the end of 09, December 09. And at the time, we were doing what we call alternating proprietorship. So... Uh, in addition to Amy, who still makes her wine here, uh, I think there were seven other winemakers that, between all of us, we made 11 different wine labels out of here. Uh, so it was, Justin was storing barrels here from Saxon. Scott had both Torin and Law here at the time. Amy had Ranchero. We had Epic Cellars. here. We had Epic here. here. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was a really fun time to make wine. But, you know, you get seven winemakers in a room, you got 15 different opinions. Um, yeah. So as as you know, Epic built their facility, and Law built their facility, and Justin built his caves. We just didn't replace them, um, and sort of grew the Denner brand into the facility a little bit. And then, you know, we kind of looked at the books, and the facility's half full. And Ron's like, "Well, you know, I'm, let's bring that back." And there weren't the personalities that I was like super excited about working with, like more people like Amy and Jordan and Justin and Scott. So uh, we were approached by Six Mile Bridge, um, who my wife Hillary was working for, helping to manage the vineyards through Coastal Vineyard Services, and they were looking for a winemaker and a facility, so we just did this custom crush deal. So it started out with Six Mile, and now um, I think we're at five other brands, so a total of six custom crush clients. Some are as small as two or three tons. Almost all of them have their own vineyards, so that makes my life really easy. So it's is like, this kind of like Denner doing Custom Crush, or is this like Anthony Yunt doing Custom Crush? I, you know, it's both. It's hard to separate it. Uh, it's all run through Denner, so we can use the whole Denner team, and everyone treats everyone's wine as if it's the best it can possibly yeah. be. I mean, there's no like hierarchy within it, so everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, and and what it really keeps it exciting for for my team because you know someone approaches us and it's like hey I've got 
old vine valdigi. You're like, <laughs> cool. I don't even know what that is. Sure. You know, so like all of a sudden, hey, you know, Alex, our assistant winemaker, go go do this research. Go check this out. And and we, uh, you know, keep keep the team really uh, excited and doing research and tasting new things. So like at the moment, we're working with over 20 varieties from over 30 different vineyards for every, everything that this sort of facility oversees. Now, this is great for you and your journey and learning wines oh. and styles and, 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 you know, you're not only trying to please palates, but please clients. But I imagine these names are coming in here. They could go to another custom crush facility if they want to just make the wines. But I think Anthony Yunt making the wines for them is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. I'm really good at baffling with bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I learned at my time at Via Creek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the master. Right. I love that. Uh, no, and, and I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, the, the winemaker style, and I try as hard as I can to not have that, and that's why I like working, for the most part, with clients that have estate vineyards, and I want those vineyards to sort of speak to it. And then you have the personality of the owner, too. It's like, with Six Mile Bridge, he's, he's a big, old-school Bordeaux guy. Like, whenever I'm at the house, you're drinking, like, 89 saint Estef. So does he tell you kind of this is what I'm looking for? Does he pour you a bottle of wine and say, this is, I love this bottle of wine. If we can achieve this neighborhood, that's what makes me happy. Yeah, a little bit. A or lot do they of just time, say, Anthony, you know times, what you're doing, bro. Make me a bomb-ass bottle of wine. A lot of times you have to pull them along. Yeah. Because uh, at the end of the day, the, the, if they're not happy with the wine, the relationship isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I could make the wine that I think is amazing. Um, but if they, if they don't love it and they don't want to open it at home, then it's never going to feel, feel yeah, like you've got to keep in mind, like they're not your customers. He's your customer exactly. or she's your customer. Whoever yeah. is hiring you. It's really uh, interesting. So did this I, make you nuts? Yeah, it absolutely made me yeah. nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what I like to do is whenever someone approaches us, like before we even decide we can do it together, I, I make them send out like four or five bottles of wine that they love. I don't even care if it's a variety they want to make. If it's a region we're working with. You know, if, if you like super Tuscans, send me a super Tuscan, even if we're planting Cabernet, you know, or, or we're planting Grenache. Like, send me whatever you're drinking right now that really turns you on, and then we can kind of get a feel for what it is you like. Is it really tannic wines? Is it really luscious wines? Is it elegant, bright wines? You know, and, and then we can look at whether the vineyard can achieve it, and if it can't, what can it achieve, and go from there. Yeah, I don't con- like to sort of iron will the vineyard. The vineyards are too important. This conversation of late has been really interesting, especially on this show, and that is the, you know, the percentage of the pie for both of you that is either art or craft when it comes to your winemaking. You know, I just had, you know, John Munch on, who obviously like people would work with him, and like Neil Collins would call them Munch fairies. Like other people would try and like rip off what he's doing, and they couldn't get away with it. He just has his style, and it's this way, and it just worked for him. Uh, how much of the, your winemaking in the last game afterwards like is, is is numbers and craft and phenolics. I mean, obviously you have the resource to work with really high end brands. How much of it is just this intuition of knowing the vineyards and its personality? Uh, for me, it all starts with the, the craftsmanship part of it. You know, you're starting with an organic thing that changes every year. So I don't like to necessarily think of myself as an artist, but more as a craftsman because I'm taking something that's already been created and making it into its next transition so you're taking a burl on a tree and you're turning it into a bowl yeah um as opposed to a blank canvas and turning it into a masterpiece uh good point so for me it's it's a lot of observation and then sort of how do do i translate that into the best example of what it can be 
And then when I mess it up, that's when the science comes in. And yeah. I, I, I like to understand that stuff because it always does rear its head. Um, so I like to understand phenolics, but it's not, it's never a winemaking decision. You know, we'll, we'll go into a vintage and we'll run like four or five things of phenolics early and four or five things late just to kind of get a feel for what the vintage is. Maybe we want to shorten up aging time, um, but use that as sort of a supporting block as opposed to helping to make the decision. Right. Amy, and, what about you? Oh, sorry, no, finish. I, I was just, one finishing thought is like, if you get lost in the numbers, you lose, you lose the attention to detail on what's actually happening in the floor. For me, everyone's, I mean, post-it note versus spreadsheet. Like if, if I'm not on the floor tasting everything, making the decisions there, then I won't enjoy it. I'm going to be off post-it notes by the end of the show. I'm going to be a different <laughs> person. What do you think, Amy? I think it is a lot of art. And I, I went to UC Davis and I learned how to make sound wine. And sound wine really isn't very interesting as in and of itself. Um, sound wine is always good. It's good to have, you know, cold stability and heat stability and all the, all the microbial stabilities and all that. But um, I think I spent about 20 years unlearning what I had learned at school in order to make interesting wine. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That you can almost like, you almost got like overeducated. Um, uh, yeah. And it's, you know, what Mark Adams said to me, the other few years ago, and I will never forget it. He said, speaking um, of an artist, speaking of an artist, he said, if Jack White had gone to music school, the white stripes would be a completely different band. Yeah. That's a pretty profound point. Yeah. So it's like, um, you can, you can, you can't learn art, but you can learn science. Mm -hmm. And then I think, well, I guess you can learn art, but you have to sort of teach yourself art. You can't, nobody can, nobody can uh, pound that into you in a school situation. But if, you know, to know these things and to know the fundamentals and to have that education as a backbone, it's probably got to help, right? I mean, I'm sure if Anthony's got a question, he's calling you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just helping others. It's helping myself too. And, and, um, you know. But it's interesting that that can get in the way. That's, that's it can. Pretty, yeah. It definitely can. When you're, you know, when you're too concerned with whether it's whether it's going to be perfect and clean and sound and have the right numbers, have the right chemistry, you might not take risks that are going to make it actually end up being a better wine. Like this Viognier that we're drinking right now. This Viognier has I threw the book at it. It has like um, skin contact and it has concrete fermentation and it has um, uh, a little bit of new French oak and. Um, it's got risk in there. It's got risk in there. There's a few things in there that are that are different, and that um, you know maybe were different than I had done the previous vintage. And I think I've I, I don't think I've ever made Viognier twice the same way. Wow! Uh, by throwing the book at it, I think you threw the natural wine book at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can buy all kinds of shit from a catalog. Oh yeah, that would be throwing the book at it. Oh, but I mean, well, you took all the all the old school like throwback. I took the throwback techniques and. And throwing the book at it was probably the wrong way because I did not make this wine by the book. I made it definitely by instinct and by from having made Viognier since 2005, trying to figure out what I like about it and um, really being passionate about the variety and wanting to coax that out of it without, um, without making a super ripe model of Viognier. What was the last big risk you took in winemaking? The, the last big risk that I took was yeah. making, making Carignan. Making Carignan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a hard sell because no one's heard of it. Yeah. And, and they can look pronounce at you, it. <laughs> they look at you. Or spell it. They look at you suspiciously like you made it up. <laughs> because, you know, they're like, I've never heard of that. Right. And you go, well, you know, it's real. 
I didn't make it up. What do you think of this uh, Viognier, Anthony? Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Isn't it good? Uh, I, I have this, like, love-hate with Viognier. So many examples can smell like the perfume counter at Macy's. Mm-hmm. And, like, Amy avoids that at all. Like, every step of the way. I would have guessed you'd be into Viognier because you love that Roussan. I do. and But Roussan's not, like blown out aromatic true I think that's what like sometimes uh-huh. gets me a viognier um and I, I certainly i like a little more restraint on mm. whites more structure whether you're getting it from skin contact and tannin or you're getting it from acidity which this wines ha- has both uh and again this is not a this is not a current release this is this is four 17. years old yeah this is 17 and so um i actually still i still have it it's the last time i made viognier because um i actually just um People think they hate Viognier, and I, I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to what people think. And I really kind of stopped making Viognier because I got tired of hearing that it was too sugary. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's texturally similar to Roussan. Yeah, and, for and sure. Like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. But it's aromatically, very it's, different. it's definitely its own beast. And I think what I've tried to do is, you know, a lot of people say that Viognier gets its aromatics late in the ripening season. So you've got to wait till it's 26, 27 bricks to get that, that real floral, real stone fruit rich aroma that Viognier is known for. But I think you can get it by picking it a little bit earlier and giving it a little bit of skin contact. And I'm only talking about maybe 24 hours. Yeah. I just squeeze it a little bit yeah. in the press and then come back the next day and finish the press load. You mean this isn't an orange wine? No. I'm so disappointed. People say, I mean, people, people go, skin contact, why isn't it orange? And I go, because I know how to make wine. Yeah. <laughs> we did a peat pool, uh, just a half a ton. We just did a barrel of it in 2018. And we did 24 hours of skin contact. Mm-hmm. How'd it turn out? It turned out pretty good. It's interesting. It was We did it at Desperado. It was Halter Ranch Fruit. Cool. Uh, we did it at Desperado. Valia and the guys were so sweet to let us do you know, a barrel of wine over there. And we did a half neutral, half stainless. And then, um, but I think because we pressed it, maybe after her soft like I get a little like sub blanky mm-hmm. notes in it, but it still's got some mouthfeel. It doesn't deliver an acid the way I thought it would because it's a peak pool. Yeah. Like when I've had other people taste it, I should have brought a bottle, damn it. Um, because I love having folks like you like kind of rip it up and get to it. Like, you know, like talk about it. And um the last person, I don't know who it was, where's the acid? You know, like for a peak pool, it's supposed to like just scream at you, right? Yeah. Skin contact, maybe. Skin yeah. contact, you yeah, know, who knows? We we use that often to to soften acidity, you know, yeah. you got, got a little too much, you can you can uh, sort of naturally soften it with a little skin time. What was the last big risk you took in the winery in the cellar? Uh, in the cellar, uh, like I mean, the, bi- the big thing for me was planting a vineyard. I mean, yeah. it's, it's that's so scary. The amount of money, and there's really no turning back. Like you can't adjust course halfway. Um, so, I mean, that was a big winemaking risk for us, and we didn't really. Hillary had. had She's a fourth generation grape grower, but in you know families from Lodi, so we couldn't really pull on that experience. Um, and we were fortunate that she's had some great mentors here and did that. But that that was big, scary for me. Um, I don't know. I don't feel like the the winery is risky. I don't know. Is it because you have clients? You have to like rein things in a little bit. I mean, any kind of riskiness or really putting yourself out there I, is going to be done on your brands or no? You know, I mean, I'm pretty. I'm pretty out there, um, and I experiment quite a bit. I'd say 25% of what we're doing in any given vintage is, you know, way way out there. Really? Um, we did a um, a 60-day, 100% whole cluster submerged cap fermentation. So we just put a screen down and then wrapped it and didn't touch it for 60 days. And, like, you don't 
you don't know. Like you can taste the top, you can taste the bottom, but like you're not working the ferment or getting any circulation. So you don't really know what's in there. So I guess that's the biggest thing, but it, it didn't really feel scary because it's like it's one and a half tons of 400. What variety was that? Carignan. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to share a, a Carignan story before we get off Carignan. The best bottle of wine I've probably ever had was Don Colombini's <laughs> Carignan. So Amy and I, with Chris and Joe and Cherry, drove up to Colombini Vineyard, which is this vineyard in Mendocino County, and we, we were working with the fruit at Via Creek, and Amy was making it. It's this like 100-year-old vineyard in Redwood Valley, uh, just east of uh, Ukiah. Yeah. And we, we left at like 3 in the morning. We pulled up at this vineyard at 9 a.m., and the guy takes us into his shop, and he's got like an old Land Cruiser and these old pickups and all these farm, in, farm machinery shit. I don't even know what it is. And he has these like, you know the dentist? Dixie cups. Dixie cups. Like, oh, yeah. You know, the mm-hmm. tiniest little ones. And he poured us his- the Little like, shot glasses. His garage like Carignan that he'd made in these. And it was like, it's the best bottle of wine I'd ever had. And then I took some home. It was awful. It was terrible. But oh. like, we were in this like, you know, here's this guy, and he's he's- in his late seventies and he was born on this property and the vineyard was already planted. And we like, we were just like, the whole thing was, it's like, the, I, I call it like the tasting room Mandela effect yeah. where it's like, we're in the Except tasting this was room. The exact opposite. It was the opposite. Like the inverted <laughs> where you're like, it's like the taste so different. You're like, great. And then you get at home. You're like, why doesn't it taste the same when, when I was in the tasting room or when I was here or when I was there? Oh man, that's so funny. There's a Carignan, uh, at a place called Porter Creek in Sonoma County. It's this little teeny, like little hot, shack thing they do tasting mm-hmm. room and it's this old vine carignan and it's like 24 25 bucks a bottle mm-hmm. and every time we go up there we just go grab like three or four of them it is so damn good nice and carignan like that you find little gems like yours or like oh there's it's so neat carignan is a fun grape you think it's going to catch on i mean syrah to some is still a hard sell for people do you think carignan will catch on I mean, I hope so. I tell that story all the time about Anthony and Chris and Joanne and I going up there, and I was like, I'm always like, by nine thirty in the morning, I was drinking carign- homemade carignan out of a Dixie cup, and by ten o'clock, I was shaking the guy's hand. Yes, I'll take half of this block. Mm-hmm. And um, I always tell it from the point of view that, which is actually true, that um, Chris kind of like dared me to make carignan and start my own label. It was kind of was kind of something I mentioned to him that I wanted to do, and then he completely called my bluff. And, and he was like, we're going up there. And I said, I can't go. I, it's the middle of harvest. I've got work to do. He's like, we're going to leave early in the morning. I'll have you back in bed by 10. You know, here we go. So, yeah. And thus, you, and it was thus, born. Ranchero Sellers was, was born. born. Ranchero Sellers was born. So I don't know if Carignan will catch on, but it certainly caught on in my mind. And I'm, I think it's a lot of... Um, a lot of what I'm seeing is um, all the cool kids now are planting Carignan yeah. and using it in their blends. And um, and hopefully um, we'll see some single varietal bottlings come out. I just ran into Sherman Thatcher this morning and he told me his car- my Carignan's coming online this year. Mm-hmm. And so people are excited about it. I think it does really well in our climate. And let's just see what happens. We will Carignan. We will Carignan. Yeah. I, I do think there's a um, there's definitely going to be a place for it here. In the Central Coast. I don't know if it'll ever be huge, but as Amy said, there, there's going to be people that are that are going to make incredible wines off it, and there's going to be this sort of buzz about Carignan, as there should be. And I don't know. It's it's challenging to farm. We've talked about the mildew. It throws like 45 tons an acre. If you, if you let if, it. If you let it. So, like, you really have to be a great farmer um, like Aaron to be able to tame young vine carignan, which is why I think it's gotten a bad name. You know, a lot of people planted it because it would hang 
20 plus tons an acre. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't make a great wine, but you right. get it down to three or four and it's smoking. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I made some Carignan off the Denner property on, in Adelaide District um, in of 2020. Course you are. In 2020. And that Aaron farms that so meticulously that he was cutting shoulders off the, off the, um, clusters and everything. I mean, it was, it, it's, it's really hard to, um, to get Carignan to, throw the, the, the kind of crop that you need for quality winemaking. That's why the French say that it's only good after it's like 35 years old because um, an older vine will self-regulate, but a younger vine is just like exuberant and just wants to crop. So it offers a lot on its own, but it offers a lot in a blend too. What does it offer in a blend? For me, it's a, it's a texture thing. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm playing with it in Grenache, like Grenache can tend to be a little hollow. Should we use that as a transition to your Grenache, Amy? Yeah, let's just That felt really Grenache. organic. That was good. Um, so Grenache can be at times a little hollow. It doesn't have a lot of mid palate and Carignan brings that richness. Um, and it plays well with others. Like I think it folds in well, whereas like Syrah, you put Syrah on a blend. It's like, Oh, there's Syrah on this wine. You know, it's pretty obvious. Uh, whereas Carignan can kind of let the, the main variety be the lead and play that support role. It, I, I blended it with Tempranillo one time and, oh, um, great, great. it was, you know, Tempranillo is very, very plush and, and, and luscious. And then Carignan is very structured and it just brought, it brought the whole thing together in a, in a very appealing geometric way, which I'm illustrating with my hands, which doesn't translate very well into a podcast, but, um, it was a, it was a beautiful blender. So you go to Davis, you come down to Paso, you get, you just told us a story about heading, heading up to uh, Mendocino with Chris Cherry and mm-hmm. then Ranchero Sellers is born. And then is it, you know, then we're doing some side hustles. We're making some wine for some other folks as well. Yeah, you know, it started, I started Ranchero when I was still making the Edward Sellers wines when a lot of people remember those wines and I get, I get a lot of still to this day, Edward Sellers ran from about 2000, from 2004 till I left, um, I left in 2010. Another winemaker took over. I think Edward Sellers ended in 2012. So, um, but I still get to this day, people who find me based on the fact that I made those wines. Wow. So, um, I started Ranchero during that. And then when I left Edward Sellers, I had to fill in the gaps. I couldn't, Ranchero wasn't big enough to support me. So I started consulting and I, it turned out I, I helped a lot of people start their brand. And, like, I went through kind of a little bit of what Anthony was talking about with trying to taste wines that they like. And sometimes people don't communicate very about, they're very well about what they want. And they'll say things like... Um, they'll say things like, I, wa- I, don't, I, don't want, I don't like an oaky wine. And then they'll show you a wine that's like silver oak. Right. And you're like, that's 200% new oak. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, it's it's a it's really important to taste with them and and get an get an idea of what they what they want. And so, I kind of feel like I came in very early with some of these clients and helped them establish their style, which has carried on. In some ways, I was sorry to leave. Um, all those wines felt like my children, and walking away is hard. But um, sometimes, you know, you got to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And you don't regret it, obviously, do you? No, I'm happy. Yeah. Because that's just one thing to kind of focus on right now. You can focus on your brand, but then the one, what is the name of the brand? The Miss? The McBride Sisters. McBride Sisters, right. Mm-hmm. So then you just like, you got yeah, one focus, we get, cross those T's, dot those I's, and then we can just focus on Ranchero Sellers. Yeah. How many wines do you make with Ranchero? Oh, it depends on the year. Um, 
I will always have the two, the two standbys are Grenache Blanc and Carignan. And sometimes I'll blend something else into the Grenache Blanc. Um, if I can, I'll make a rosé. And then this wine, every, every once in a while, I'll throw in something new into the, into the mix. I was looking at, for example, we're drinking a Grenache from 2018. Um, awesome, by the way. I was looking really at, good. thank you, I was looking at this vineyard from across the street. It's, it's across the street from the La Vista vineyard where I get my Viognier. And I watched it be, it was a walnut grove, and then it was empty, and then it was, it was sticks, and then it was vines. And then I was like, I would like to make wine from that property because I saw it go in. It was dry farmed. It was head drained. Um, from what I could tell, it was a really good planting. I had no, I couldn't even tell from where I was standing what variety it was. And then I happened to run into an acquaintance of mine, um, Kevin Usula from Kukula, and he said, yeah, I'm farming this new piece on Adelaide Road. And oh, it's his. <laughs> That's awesome. I like Kevin. Yeah, it's, it was his buddies, but then he was farming it for him. And, and he's like, yeah, I could probably scoop you off a, a few tons. And so that's how I lucked into this wine. And you're so thankful it wasn't Zinfandel. I'm so thankful it wasn't <laughs> Zinfandel. Because maybe if it had been, I would have branched out. But um, anyway, I love this wine. And this is the first crop off these, off these vines. So a lot of times when you have younger vines, the, the wine is very exuberant and um, real showy, real fruit forward. Um, I did this, uh, completely destemmed it. I didn't, which is unusual. I like to ferment things on the stems, but I completely destemmed this, um, fermented it, aged it in, I think, uh, a third new oak, but it doesn't, it doesn't show oaky. No, it's, uh, I, I love the like balance between fruit and herbaceousness, mm -hmm. like that chaparral, um, you know, wild brush smell to it it's it's really intoxicating on the nose thank you i love i love working with it's interesting when you're really small you know i don't do a lot of blending anymore i t i typically take something from from vineyard to bottle from vine to bottle or a single block because i'm i'm making so little wine i don't have you know if i if i were to blend this grenache with another block of grenache somewhere else i would have way too much grenache to sell mm -hmm. so um it's enabled me to really focus down into what the characteristics of each of these blocks are. When you talk about head-trained Grenache, a lot of people may associate that, like you said, with Zinfandel, and it's kind of like, for someone who doesn't know, it's like these little bonsai trees that come right out of it. Mm -hmm. what, is, um, what would the differences be in the characteristics of the Grenache from, say, a head-trained situation to, to not? I don't know, because I've never made Grenache from the same site that was some head-trained and some not oh, head-trained. Yeah. So um, what I think it's good about about um, Grenache gets sunburned easily, and when it gets sunburned, it tends to bleach, and it doesn't have very good color. And so um, the head trained, uh, if you if you do it correctly, the the Grenache the fruiting zone is right in the center of the vine, and it's really well shaded by all these um, all this canopy growth. It's like an umbrella, like an umbrella, like a little parasol for the for the fruit, and. Um, yeah, thanks, Anthony. That was good because it's exactly I, like that. I didn't come up with parasol. You that, didn't say that's parasol. That's above my. I'm, like, English is a third language here, and I don't have the first two. <laughs> your first, your first language is Missourian. Yeah, is shade cloth becoming a thing? I feel like I'm hearing more and more people uh, getting into shade cloth. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I work with Grenache off here at Denner uh, and on the Adelaide property at, for Denner, um, where we have it on a wire and we have it on on. Um, 
head trained. And I, I do think, I mean, the color is one thing. I do find there tends to be a little darker color. Um, but the head trained also, like that bleaching has a sort of, if you don't, if you don't get it out or don't do the, the like sprawl uh, canopy on the, on the VSP, it has a more sort of bitter tannin profile to it. Oh. Um, and, and that's one thing I found out with great farming, obviously it doesn't really matter. But I think if you're going to go with lazy fair farming, which all of us would like to spend a little less time manicuring our canopies, I think the head train just produces a better wine with lower inputs. Um, and like Royal Nonsuch is all the Grenache is head trained there. But it doesn't work on every variety. I mean, Syrah is really challenging to head train. Uh, we do work with a little bit, um, but it's, it's almost more work than if it were on a VSP because it doesn't have the, the, the bleaching sunburn issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And it works really well with a variety that has somewhat of an upright habit. But if you have a really sprawling variety, all that happens is the canopy sort of goes downward and the fruit is exposed to all that sun and it doesn't create that nice umbrella or parasol effect. Mm-hmm. So it, it does really depend on, on the, um, the variety. Let's talk about Paso a little bit. This Grenache is really good. Is this mixed with anything or is this all, this all Grenache? It's all Grenache, all, all from Grenache. this single vineyard. It's called Green Acres Vineyard. And um, it's, like I said, it's on Adelaide Road. I bet it's like um, halfway between um, Adelaide Winery and Halter Ranch on the south side of the road. Love it. Let's, um, kind of curious what y'all, either your takes on Paso. I mean, it's changing so much. It's blowing up so much. I mean, you guys both began your careers in winemaking at a time where Paso was just getting into something super special. Uh, Amy, I mean, you were here before me. Why don't you fire? I moved here from Napa Valley in 2002. So I have a a pretty clear um, picture of how much it's changed. Um, When I first got here, I don't think that Paso Robles was ready for me, and I wasn't maybe ready for it. I kind of came with a Napa attitude, and I kind of came with a Davis attitude, and I was like, I can help you. But at the time, that wasn't really popular, a popular view. I ruffled some feathers. I ruffled some feathers. Yeah. But I got past it. You know, I, I, I became humble. I started my I started back at the beginning at the very bottom of the career scale. I started as a forklift operator and I and I um, kind of worked my way through and then eventually got this Edward Sellers job through a contact of mine in Napa. So I both I both started from scratch in Paso and then also got my my um, my Napa contacts sort of came through. But um, Paso Robles is really much more friend, much more friendly environment than Napa Valley was for me. Even back then. Even back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Paso. It's an anomaly, right? It's the only place on the Western United States that has limestone that can grow grapes. You know, when you talk about the great grown, growing regions of the world, whether it's Chablis, Burgundy, uh, Champagne, Loire, Loire, the Rhone, Piedmont, mm-hmm. right bank of Bordeaux, limestone. Um, so. We've got that, and then now, I mean, I feel like it's the last three or four years, the investment from outside that's being put towards really great things. Talent. And, 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 and also, like, bringing our talent up. Like, you're not seeing a ton of winemakers come in from elsewhere with these new projects. It's people coming in from within the community out. Um, and then you see investment from within. Guys like Julian Aseo mm-hmm. went to Templeton High School. Right. You know, opens... Probably the best restaurant in a 500-mile radius. I mean, LPC is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's creative, and he's doing it, and, and it's his own style. You know, it's not like he took 
Guy Savoy and put it in Paso. He knew how to make it feel like Paso. Yeah. So I think and that's important, too, because his experience would lend one to think that he could be doing the square plate, and he would rock that completely well too but he kind of knew his surroundings growing up here and may you know tweak things to get his style in a way that would just flourish at home here for sure and i think that that's important that you're seeing this investment from both sides and that the the investment that's coming into paso seems to understand it um there's very few things you're like wow that didn't that didn't really fit uh sensorio i mean awesome cool let's let's showcase the hillsides yeah you know the beautiful rolling hills of paso sure Uh, so it, it's an exciting time to be here, culinary, wine-wise. I mean, stylistically, I felt, you know, 15 years ago, wine was pretty consistent. Uh, the success of Justin, I think a lot of people were looking at Justin Smith saying, how, how do I make that? How do I get that success? And now you've got guys saying, you know, I don't have to do it that way. Well, a lot of those people were right out of your crush pad here. Yeah. You know, I mean. Well, we were watching like, him do it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. But you think of like uh, the folks and, you know, like I talked to Jordan about you today, trying to get a little bit of a, you know, insight on you and folks that know you well, like, you know, Justin Smith or the Chris Cherries or the Bill and Liz Armstrongs that know you well. And yeah, I mean, what an exciting time to see all this stuff happening around on this, you know, particularly this West Side and this kind of, you know, it's almost like a little cool kids club. Now, when you look at all these brands that are just like slaying it. It's it's a cool kids club that has open arms. Sure. You know, like it's not not clicky. It's not not closed off. Um, And I was so lucky. I mean, I took over as head winemaker here. I was 24. And I, I had, you know, people like Jordan with a, Masters from UC Davis, Amy with an education from Davis, Justin, that same year was Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. I mean, like I had all these guys, Scott from Fresno, and like I, I don't have a degree in winemaking. And so I had all these people to bounce ideas off of to watch me make one big dude. I don't think you should do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, Stefan was, you know, he had no relationship here. And the minute I took this job, he, he came over with Guillaume and Dave and was like, I want to taste your wines. And like unsolicited, you know, in his French style, he's not going to hold back. So no, sure. You know, he he gave me a whole earful of all the shit I was doing wrong. Really, that's kind of cool. Super cool. That's way cool. So give me that moonshine. We'll get by. We pass on around till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Thanks to Amy Butler and Anthony Yunt. We had such a great conversation and we are going to pick up that conversation again next week where we talk about everything from what's next for these two. Amy is also going to be roasted in October for charity. And I was invited to be one of the roasters and we talk about if I even should do that and if she regrets even saying yes to being roasted. I can't wait to pick up the conversation next week with these two again. And you don't have to wait two weeks for part two. I will publish it for you next week. All right, so in today's Travel Paso Spotlight, we're going to pick up the next episode sharing with you these amazing accommodations that Paso has uh, been adding into the mix. The next time we talk, I want to share the stables with you. It's this new brand, super cool spot, but because this is very timely, I want to share with you today the one and only California Mid-State Fair. 
In its 75th anniversary and back from a year off like everything else, the Mid-State Fair has something for everyone. Home of everything fair, right? I mean, the animals, mutton busting, live shows all over the place on many different stages, all the rides, games, the commercial buildings, even the Central Coast Wine Competition, which encapsulates 10 counties in California from Ventura County all the way through Contra Costa County. We also have a spirits competition that actually this Sunday I will be hosting and judging where the award-winning spirits get paired up with some of the area's best mixologists and they make cocktails that will just blow your mind. Best part, the same cocktails that the judges taste, you can taste for a $30 ticket. Taste them in this tasting going on from five to seven on Sunday. Go to midstatefair.com for anything fair related and the fair itself runs now until Sunday, August 1st. And I got to throw down this congratulations because the Slow County Wine Industry Awards are actually tonight at the fair and some big Paso names won some big awards. Grape Grower of the Year, Lucas Pope of Coastal Vineyard Services. I'm thrilled to present him that award tonight. And Winemaker of the Year, I couldn't be more excited, went to the one and only Jordan Fiorentini from Epic Estate Wines. She's been on the show before. She is She's a spectacular world-class winemaker and an even better person. So congrats to you, Jordan, and to you, Lucas, and to all the winners of the Slow County Wine Industry Awards being awarded tonight. Now, if you do hit up the fair, I will be doing my radio show, The Cork Dorks, with my co-host Jeremy West every day, live from 4 to 7, from Mission Square towards the north end of the fair. You can also listen live, crush925.com and stream it. Now, next time we're going to talk Travel Paso Spotlight, we're going to take you to The Stables, one of our newest places places super cool spot i'm really excited to share it with you check out travelpasso.com for the latest and thanks to travel paso for being a part of where wine takes you where wine takes you is executive produced by joel peterson and paso robles wine associate producer jen bravo where wine takes you is recorded edited and produced by yours truly i'm your host adam montiel next time you're cruising around on the central coast you can tune me in on your radio my morning show weekday mornings up and adam in the morning heard on coast 104.5 and wine country radio the cork dorks and more on the crush 92.5 and you can stream it crush with a k crush925.com well, till next week for part two, huh? Lift that Paso glass up high. No, we're here waiting for you. And cheers to where wine takes you. And give me that passion, get by, we pass on down till the job is Get out in the trees, it will simplify and work come. Give me that moonshine, get by, we pass on down till the job is Camped out in the trees who will simplify and good company.